My name is Jason. If you're new around here, um, I'm one of the teaching pastors, and I'm excited to be able to talk to you today about God's Word. We're in a, a series called Unexpected. We started it last week, and if you missed the launch of it, you probably ought to go back and watch it. It's on our YouTube channel. Um, it might give you some context for the next few weeks. But basically, the, the premise of this series is that um, there are some unexpected people that Matthew brings up in the genealogy of Jesus, when he's telling the story about the Christmas story, about the coming of Jesus Christ, he starts with this genealogy, and it's not necessarily full of the people you'd expect. And so that's our series. That's what we're doing here today. But before we get started, um, how many of you guys think that you are a great judge of character? How many of you think that you're the best judge of character of all the people around you? Right? I think that, that's a natural tendency for all of us. I think we all tend to think that, like, I'm the best judge of character. Right? Like, like, of course I know what's going on around me because I'm so good at this. Right? Do you guys identify with that? Isn't it funny how every one of us is the best at that? We're all good at being a great judge of character. And yet, have you ever had one of those moments where you said, boy, I felt like I knew them. Have you ever had one of those moments? You're like, wow, I, that really caught me off guard. I, I, you feel like you know somebody, you know? And, and then something catches you off guard. See, I, I had this, uh, this friend. Um, in fact, um, their family, his family was, was friends with my family. We were raising kids at the same time. We were neighbors. Um, his wife and my wife would get together and, and enjoy each other's company. Him and I would go off and we would play paintball together or we'd work in the shop together. We, we were Friends, it was a it was a great um, time in our life, a great season to be so close to other families like theirs. Uh, and they had a they had a sweet family. Um, he had a great wife, wonderful kids. And one day I got a phone call that he had had an affair. And I was like, "Are you, are you kidding? You? I thought I I thought I knew you." And have you ever had one of those moments? Like maybe it's not that particular. Um, story, right? But have you ever had something like that where somebody really surprised you and you're like, I thought I knew you, man. I never would have seen that coming. And, and sometimes it happens on a big scale, right? Like it's like a mega pastor that falls with a moral failure and we're like, oh, I thought I, I really like all the messages I hear. I thought I knew that they couldn't possibly do that, right? Or, or some star or maybe a teacher, right? Maybe you had a teacher in high school that you really looked up to. And then in college, you go to like a college party and they're there and they're like a complete mess. And you're like, what? I thought I knew you. Like, you were so important when you were teaching English. <laughs> Turns out you're not who I thought you were at all. And a lot of times it comes out of left field, right? It's totally unexpected. And, and listen, maybe you've experienced this personally. Maybe somebody hurt you. Somebody that you held in high regard. Somebody that was supposed to not hurt you. You know what I mean? And, and when that person hurts you, you're like, man, I thought, I, thought I, I knew, like, I could see this coming from other people in my life, but not from you. And maybe... They hurt you, maybe, maybe they disappointed you, maybe you have some scars and some trauma and some pain, not because of what happened, but because of who it happened from. Or maybe you are that person, or you have been that person. 
And, and nobody expected you to be able to fail, right? It's just everybody in your life just thought you were above reproach and everything was fine. And, and, and you knew the secret about yourself that somewhere inside you, you were capable of, of causing this kind of pain. And, and you try to hold it back and eventually you hurt somebody. You wounded somebody. Maybe that's your story. Or, or maybe you've used this expression that you feel like you know somebody on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, and you say, I know exactly who you are. You're the type of person that's going to hurt me. I know what you're capable of. I know that you're the type of person I'm not going to let close. I'm going to keep you at arm's length. You're the bad one in my life. See, we have this, this sense that we're such a great judge of character, don't we? And underneath this great judge of character is this, this sense, and, I, and ultimately I think it's a lie, but we have this idea that everything is black or white. It's good or bad. And the reality is that people are more complex than that, aren't they? A lot of our stories and a lot of the stories of the people around us are a lot more gray. And we're always surprised when the hero becomes the villain where the villain becomes the hero because we want everything to be so black and white. And the reality is that our life is a little more gray than that, isn't it? And what I love about the Bible is that what we find in the Bible isn't this um, really compelling black and white story. It's not like when God sat down to explain his story in history that he gives you these absolutes, these black and whites, and that it, that would be really interesting but it wouldn't necessarily look like real life, would it? And what I love about the Bible is that it, there's a lot of people in there that have a pretty gray story, a little more complex than just black and white. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at one of those characters who kind of has this, this gray, um, ambiguous story. And I think we're going to get a lot out of it. And so, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to eventually be in Genesis 38. And you can start turning there, but it's going to take me a minute to get us there. I actually want to start in Revelation chapter 5. And so, um, if you don't know what's happening in the early part of the book of Revelation, John is seeing this vision of heaven. And in his vision of heaven, he sees this, this scroll and the scroll has seven seals on it, and it represents the judgment of God, the righteous judgment on a sinful world, and it's about to be opened. It's about to be poured out on the world, and yet nobody is worthy to open it because nobody's outside of God's judgment. And so they look around the throne room, and, and nobody is worthy to open it, and so John starts to weep. And verse 5 of Revelation 5 says this, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is worthy. One of the elders stops John. He's like, it's okay. You don't have to be worried. Somebody is truly righteous. Somebody is worthy, and it's Jesus. But you notice that he doesn't use Jesus' name. How does he describe Jesus? How does this elder in heaven, in the throne room of God, talking about the only one who is righteous, the only one who is worthy? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that gives me the feels. I don't know about you guys, but like that makes me think of, of majesty and power and authority. 
authority and honor the tribe of Judah, the lion. Makes me, like, I don't know if you guys like the, the, um, the Lord of the Rings series, but there's that point in there when, when the king's line is remade and somebody's like, that line was broken. And you go, it has been remade. <laughs> this gives me like the, the, the Jesus feels. I'm like, oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? So what I want to do is I want to talk to you guys about Judah. Judah is in the genealogy of Jesus. And by the time we get to Revelation, by the time we're in the throne room of God and we're talking about Jesus' majesty and he is described with Judah's name, and I'm thinking Judah must have this great, great story. In fact, did you guys, you, you probably didn't know, but Judah, Judah's name is brought up 804 times in the Bible, which is a lot. Let me give you some perspective. Jacob, Judah's father, his name is brought up 363 times. Isaac, his grandfather, only 129. Abraham, 235 times. Abraham. Think about it. Like, if you know the Bible, you know Abraham is like super important, right? And Judah is four times. He's brought up four times as often as Abraham. In fact, an entire kingdom is named after Judah. If you know the, the history of the nation of Israel, um, Israel um, is only a nation as a, as a complete whole for a short period of time for three kings. And after Solomon, it breaks and you have the northern nation or tribe. It's 10 of them. They still go by the nation of Israel. And then the southern kingdom is Judah. And out of Judah's kingdom is where David comes from, where Jesus comes from. In fact, there's this ancient prophecy. 2,000 years before Jesus' birth, Jacob, Judah's father, is dying and he's blessing his sons and he prophesies over Judah that from Judah will come the line of kings and it will never end. That it will be fulfilled in Jesus with this everlasting rule. And he's not even the oldest. He's the fourth oldest of Judah's sons. He got to skip over three of his brothers to get that blessing. And so Judah ends up in the lineage of Jesus. Check this out in Matthew chapter 1. This will take us back to last week. Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So Judah ends up in the lineage of Jesus. And you have to understand that when Jesus came, that was the pinnacle of human history, but up until that point, everything that God was doing was building to the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And that from Jesus, everything that flows forward in history is a result of or looks back to him. He is the highlight. And as God built toward Jesus, he chose to build with Judah. Who is this guy? This guy must be absolutely amazing, right? If, if the way that Jesus gets described in his righteousness is with Judah's name. And if Judah's mentioned four times as much as Abraham, and, and God builds with him on the way to Jesus, he must be amazing, right? David and, and Jesus both come from him, and he must be an amazing leader, honorable man, a, an authority figure with strength, a hero of the faith, right? I mean, he's listed among some amazing heroes of the faith. I want to talk to you guys about his story because I think you might be surprised it's not quite that black and white. 
And so, again, we're going to be in Genesis 38. I, I need to tell you about Genesis 37 for it to make sense. Because Genesis 37 is where a very familiar story starts. If you guys have ever seen uh, The Prince of Egypt, um, if you've seen um, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat on Broadway, right, you'll know this story. Maybe you've read your Bible. That would be good, church people, right? Joseph. Joseph's story starts in chapter 37. And what you guys need to know about Joseph's story is that um, he comes out of a very dysfunctional family. Okay? Jacob is his dad, and, and Jacob um, wants this woman to be his wife. Her name is Rachel, but Rachel's dad tricks him, and he ends up with Leah, and he doesn't know that he got the older sister, Leah, until he wakes up the day after the wedding. Do you know what I mean? Okay? And you can imagine what Leah saw in Jacob's face when he goes, oh, I wanted your sister. And the dysfunction begins there, but that's not where it ends because he sticks around and he waits for another chance to marry Rachel, the one he actually wanted. And he does eventually, um, but in the meantime, he starts building a family with Leah. And in fact, by the time he has Leah and Rachel, both his wives, he also ends up with both of their handmaids, which was this weird thing, and suddenly there are four women involved in this marriage. So Jacob wanted Rachel, and he ended up with Rachel and her handmaid, and Leah and her handmaid, and he's starting to have a pretty big family. In fact, he has 10 kids with Leah and the handmaids before Rachel ever gives birth. 10 sons. So Jacob's starting to have a lot of sons, but when Rachel, his favorite, the one he wanted, has a son, her firstborn is Joseph. And so if you've ever wondered, why was, why was Joseph his favorite it was because he was the first one from the favorite wife. Look at the dysfunction that is already starting in the story. We haven't even gotten into it yet, right? And so he treats Joseph like the favorite. It's obvious. He gives him this special coat, right, that says to everybody around him that you're my favorite. He doesn't have to go out and tend the flocks of sheep. He gets to stay home with dad. And there is this one point when dad says, I need you to go check on your brothers. I've heard that they're off in this far distant country with the sheep. I need you to go check on him. And so he sends him out there. And on his way, his brothers see him and they go, here comes the dreamer. And the reason is because when they were all back at home, Joseph had a dream, a God-given dream. And his dream was that all of his family, his brothers and his mother and his father were all going to bow down to him. But Joseph was 17. And 17-year-olds are stupid. I can say that because I'm a youth pastor, okay? So instead of holding that close, right, he runs into the living room and he's like, you guys, I had a dream. You're, gonna know, you're not going to believe it, you guys. You're all going to bow down to me. And if it wasn't bad enough that he was already the favorite, now they hate him. And so when he shows up out in the field, Wearing his coat, not dirty, probably smelling of the perfumes and they're smelling of who knows what. And they go, oh, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. And they decide they're going to kill Joseph. They hate him that much. But Reuben steps in. Reuben's the oldest brother, and he says, you know what? I don't think we should kill him right away. Here's a hole in the ground. 
let's throw him in the hole, and then we'll decide what to do with him. And what's crazy is he brings lunch. His whole point was to bring them food, and it says that they threw him in the hole and then ate. Like, they're like, oh, thanks for the subway. And he's in this hole, and I don't know where Reuben goes, because Reuben's plan, he, he, he wanted him to go in the hole so that he could come back and get him out, save him. But I don't know where Reuben goes. He must leave after lunch. He goes and takes a nap. I don't know. And then off in the distance, there's these spice traders, these slave traders that are coming along. And Judah, our boy Judah, says, you guys, why would we kill Joseph when we could sell him? Like, you realize, we could make him go away either way, but we could make some money. And so they do. They sell Joseph into slavery. They sell their own brother. And then they take his coat, this special coat, and they dip it in an animal's blood, and they take it home to Jacob, and they go, we found this. Is, is this what we think it is? And Jacob goes, my son! Right in front of him. My favorite boy! I'm never going to stop mourning for him. And then it's crazy, because it, he, he mourns for like the right amount of time of mourning, right? And then it starts to be a little bit unreasonable. And it says at the end of chapter 37 that all the sons and daughters tried to come in and comfort him. And can you imagine when Judah walks in there? Oh, Dad, are you, it was his coat, wasn't it? Oh, I'm so sorry. You know what? Why don't we, we'll go put up some posters. Why don't we send some people? We'll look for him, Dad. I think we can find him. It's going to be okay really sorry, Dad. And he turns around, he's like, <laughs> got him, right? He's gone. That sets the stage then for chapter 38, because if you know that story, you probably know where that story's going, and if you're reading your Bible, it's always really weird to get to that point, and then this weird chapter that we're going to read, okay? So with that as the background, Genesis 38 chapter, or verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers, and went down to stay with a man of Agilom named Harah. There Judah met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. All right, so pause for a second. Judah left. Very first thing it says, at that time, Judah left. Well, the very last verse of the other chapter was that his dad was unconsolable. He would not stop mourning for Joseph. And so Judah bails. And listen, this is a not, I mean, like family's important now, but we have this cultural expectation that it's okay to like move away. That was not the way family worked back then. In fact, this family was super important because God had said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. Your family is important. And he passes that on to Isaac. He passes that on to Jacob. And so this family has this heritage of like, we have something going for us, but we have to stick together. And Judah leaves. And he marries into a people that he wasn't supposed to marry into. And that's actually super important too. But here's what I want you to see. Judah abandoned his family. And I think there's one of two reasons. Either he was legitimately tired of his father's love for Joseph. He thought he had dealt with it. He got rid of the kid, right? And then he goes in and he's like, Dad, there are 11 more of us. Will you just love us? 
He's gone. I'm sorry. And Jacob's like, I'm never going to stop. I'm going to go to my grave mourning for Joseph. I love him. And so maybe he left because he was just tired of that. Or maybe he left because he was ashamed. Because he knew what he did. And he couldn't be around his father knowing that he had caused that pain. Isn't it true that a lot of times we tend to run from the things that we're ashamed of? We will end relationships with people because we were wrong because it hurts us too much to be in that environment. And maybe that's what he did. Either way, it says that he, he went away and, and he ended up with this Canaanite woman. And you know, in, in the NIV here, it says that he married her. That's not in the Hebrew. That's the translator trying to soften the blow about this weird passage that's coming up. And, and just so that everybody in the room and everybody online is aware, this chapter is going to be PG-13. We have a great children's ministry, and now is not too late to go check your kids in if you feel like you need to. Um, but I, the, the word married isn't in there. It says in the Hebrew that he took her and he had her. At this point, you guys, Judah isn't who I thought he was going to be. I don't know about you, but when you read Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah, I'm a little disappointed in Judah at this point. He hates his brother to the point that he sells him. He lies to his dad. He abandons his family. He shacks up with a foreign woman. And then in verse 3, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Okay, first thing I need you to pay attention to here is, not only did he leave his family, he left his family long enough to raise a family. Ur is now grown up. It's a verse later, but Ur is a man. And Judah goes and finds a wife for Ur. And did you notice there at the end, like that, that last verse is kind of crazy, um, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Don't you think it's weird that the Bible is full of these one-word sentences, or one-sentence thoughts, and you're just like, what? Like, pause for a second. I want some details here. That's crazy, because, you know, there are some things in the Bible that it says you need to to die for. In God's law, like there are some things, and, and maybe he did one of those things. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But what I do know is that this man wasn't old enough to have lived a lifetime of debauchery and horrible things. He was just old enough to get married, and God was like, oh, you are too wicked. See, I think Judah wasn't just a bad brother, a bad son, a bad boyfriend. I think he was a bad father. I put the blame here on Judah. Now, it doesn't say that in the scripture, but I think it just makes sense that like his bad character is now rubbing off on this family that he is building. But pay attention to Tamar, because Judah brings her into this story. Did you catch that? That Judah went knocking on her dad's door and said, I would like for your daughter to marry into my family. I'd like for her to marry my son. 
And I'm going to guess that when that happened, that was probably an honor, right? Because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this family that had grown in this region was blessed by God. And I'm sure that they had a great reputation. And so Judah shows up and he's like, hey, I'd like for your daughter to be part of my family. And it was probably like, okay, let's do this. That probably was good for her, or so she thought. But before she could get pregnant, God kills her husband. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. Dot, dot, dot. This is the part that might not even be PG-13. This is like R-rated. There's some details in here that if you feel like knowing the story, you should read it. But the short version is that he got to enjoy being married without doing his job of producing offspring for his brother-in-law. Essentially, what, what is happening here is called leverate or leverite marriage. It was this, this common ancient expectation that if a woman was widowed before she could have kids, that it was her husband's brother's responsibility to help pass on the family name. And so he would um, help her get pregnant, and her firstborn would actually be the descendant of the brother. Because your name, your, in, your heritage, the inheritance, everything passed through one generation to the next. And in order to honor that, somebody had to step in and help. In fact, it becomes part of Moses' law later. And so even though it was already happening here, God even includes that in how we treat family in this ancient world. But Onan was like, sure, I'll take the girl but I'm not giving her any offspring. I'd love to, like, that, that part of the, the marriage thing, that sounds fun. I'll do that part. I'm just not raising any kids with her. Verse 10, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. What? Another one of those, like, are you, wait, 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 wait. I need a, more than a sentence on this, right? Actually, there was more than a sentence. Go back and read the dot, dot, dot. Okay. Imagine this from Tamar's perspective. Judah comes knocking one day, would you be in my family? And her and her dad talk about it, and they're like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And he takes her from her father's home to become a wife, to become a mother, to become a woman. And at this point, she has two dead husbands and no children. Verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah can grow up. For he thought may, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. You guys, Judah is the one who took her from her father's household. He's the one who promised her this heritage, that she would become a woman under his care, right? And that you guys, Judah is the one who should be taking care of her right now, not her dad. She's his daughter by choice, and he sends her home to her dad. And he sends her back home probably thinking, maybe this problem will just go away. If, maybe she'll fall in love with the neighbor. Like, I don't have any grandkids to worry about. She could just be out of sight, out of mind. But he never had any intention of giving his third son to her. And you want to know what's really crazy here? He blames it on her. 
That's the context here. Like, I'm not giving you another kid. Gosh, they've all died. Like, like somehow it's her fault that his wicked sons are so bad that God kills them. And I think we do that a lot too, don't we? Where we, we tend to take all of our problems and pretend like they don't exist and then find them in other people. Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went to Timnah, the, to the man who, or men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirah, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that, though Shelah had not grown up, she had not been given to him as wife. And I think that she at this point is doing the math. And she's like, okay, he, he was 14. It's been eight years. Crap, this isn't going to happen, is it? Right? I think that she's figured it out at this point. Like, he didn't send me home until he just sent me home. And so she takes matters into her own hands. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute. That was the disguise. For she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. And at this point, I'm no longer um, confused about who Judah is. This is so Judah, isn't it? Like, we know some dirt bags, don't we? We know some scumbags in our life. And when they're like, oh, I went to the strip club last night, you're like, of course you did, right? And here it's like Judah found a prostitute. Of course he did. Judah's a scumbag. Verse 17. He says, I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Like, that was the going rate for her service was a goat, Ladies, I am so glad you are worth so much more than that. He says, uh, or she says, will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asks. I think she looks around. She's like, well, where's the goat? <laughs> he's like, oh, I don't have the goat, do I? He said, well, what pledge should I give you? I don't know. What do I have on me? And she goes, I'll take your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. And the seal was a signet ring. It was essentially like a signature. And you could send somebody on your behalf with your signature. It's like giving your kid your credit card and saying, go get groceries, right? It was a representation of who you were. It was your identity. And she said, I'll, I'll take those things until you can get me the goat. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes. She takes off the disguise. Isn't this a bizarre story, you guys? It's kind of twisted. Judah accidentally gets his own daughter-in-law pregnant. What a mess. Verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. And he asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been a shrine prostitute here, they said. And that word shrine actually really tells us a lot more about what's going on here. She was not simply dressing up as a prostitute. She was dressing up as a shrine prostitute. There was this 
pagan, cultural, religious practice that uh, apparently their gods were so perverted that the way to get their attention, the way to get them happy was through these abhorrent, horrible sexual actions. And so they would actually employ or allow prostitutes at the temple to make that happen. And so she dressed up as a shrine prostitute. Now listen, I don't think that says that much about Tamar. I think it says a whole lot about Judah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Literally, the God of the universe had spoken to these men and said, I am the one. You will follow me, and you will disregard all of this stuff around you. They had direct revelation from God, and he's one generation removed. You know he knows. And he goes and he finds a shrine prostitute. How far gone is Judah at this point? But this Adulamite friend of his, he can't find her. So verse 22, so we went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughing stock. Like, I'm not chasing this debt down. I'll get another ring. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. I think Judah thinks he got away with something here. I think Judah thinks he's good. Like, I got what I wanted. It didn't even cost me anything. Yes. I think that at this point, that is so Judah. Only thinking about himself, right? Oh, she had a chance to get her goat. Bummer. She wasn't there. This is the same guy who was only thinking about himself when he shipped his brother away. Only thinking about himself when he left his mourning father. Only thinking about himself whenever he pulled Tamar into this story. All right, so verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. What a hypocrite. Like seriously, even if she wasn't his prostitute, do you realize how hypocritical this is? Like three months ago, he had a prostitute. She's convicted of it or guilty of it. And he's like, burn her. Horrible woman. How embarrassing that she's in my family at all. Like she, kill her. What a jerk, right? At this point, aren't you guys all mad at him? Like I read this and I'm like, oh, if I was there, oh, I'd have some words for Judah, Right? What? A, you need to be taking care of people. And look at, you're just such a selfish, horrible person. It's a good thing none of us are like this at all, right? It's a good thing none of us ever project our problems onto other people, right? See, there's this, this modern term called projection, and it's this idea of finding and criticizing the problems in others that deep down are actually the problems in us. And often we get the most angry when someone does something that we're the most ashamed of. Parents, you guys see this, right? You see something in your kids, and after you've just lashed out at them, you're like, oh gosh, that's me. Right? We, the things that we are most ashamed of, we know. We, if anybody knows, we know. That's horrible. 
And we see it in somebody else, and we're like, oh, that is wicked. And we're so happy to pour out that, that anger and that wrath on other people as long as our thing stays hidden, right? That's projection. And as angry as we get at Judah here, man, I think we're a lot like Judah. And listen, maybe you've had stuff come out of your mouth that was so hurtful, so vicious, so cutting. You wish you could go back in time and pull those things back in, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe things come out of your mouth that, and you see the hypocrisy if it fly, as it flies out of your mouth, but you couldn't possibly admit to that, right? Because then that leaves you vulnerable. And so you just cover it up with, like, no, you go to your room. You're the bad one here. I'm not bad. Or maybe you've had this happen to you. Maybe you've been embarrassed in the hallway at school. Maybe you've been called out in front of others, maybe in front of your family for something that you've done that you know you're not the only one, but you're the only one getting embarrassed. Maybe somebody has said something that cut you down and hurt you, and this person had some position of authority or they were supposed to be better than that. And the truth is, I think we can all see ourselves in this story. We may not have all experienced what they experienced, but I think that we're in there. See, maybe you identify with Judah at this point, and you'd say, man, I am just one screw-up after another. I've made one bad decision, led me to another bad decision, led me to another one. At this point, I'm just, I'm so far gone, I feel like it's just, my life is irredeemable. I'm not sure that this is fixable. Or maybe... Maybe you've encountered Jesus and you're like, no, I feel, I feel like God has grace for some stuff. But there's part of me still that's irredeemable. And I think that's actually a lot more common among us believers, us church people, that we acknowledge God's grace, that there's some forgiveness out there, but there's this part of me that I hold on to that's deep down inside that like if you really knew me, that part's never going to get fixed. I've tried. That part's broken in me. I just can't get better there. And I think sometimes we hold on to that as leverage to say that if you only really knew me, you wouldn't love me. I'm not going to let anybody see this because if they did, they wouldn't love me. But then I have the leverage to keep thinking I'm unlovable regardless of all the love I'm getting because I'm the only one who knows that that's in there. I'm the only one that knows that I struggle with that thing. So we're just like Judah. He's just wearing it on his sleeve at this point. Or maybe you're like Tamar, and you've done some things wrong. And listen, I, you guys need to hear me. We don't condone the way she went about this. <laughs> maybe you've done some things wrong, but you're the victim. Listen, every one of us has been wronged at some point, right? And for some of us, it's been really serious. Some of us have been abused or rejected or abandoned or mislabeled or misunderstood or underappreciated. And we hold on to that, don't we? Now, I want to pause our story here in, in chapter 38, and I'm going to skip forward in the story, okay? So you need to understand we're coming back to this, but we're going to skip forward to a part of the story you probably recognize. 
okay? If you, if you know Joseph's story, then you kind of know how it ends, right? Joseph, the one who was sold into slavery, he becomes super important. In fact, through this like roller coaster of a life, he ends up in the king's court, and then even more important, he becomes like the vice king. He's like almost king in Egypt. And his job is to pass out this stored-up grain that they had stored up because he had a God-given vision that there was going to be this famine. So they started stockpiling and stockpiling resources. And then when the famine came, it was his job to pass it out. His brothers come. Foreigners realize he's in Egypt. His brothers come because of the famine, and they need some grain. But he doesn't look anything like he did whenever they sold him into slavery. He, at this point, looks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian. He probably had that cool like ponytail in the back, and he maybe had tattoos, and was wearing all this gold stuff, and didn't look or sound anything like the Joseph that they knew. But he knew them. And so when they show up looking for grain, he wants to test them. And through a series of tests, he basically he, he hears that they've got this younger brother that didn't come with him, Benjamin the only other brother of Rachel, doesn't have to go on the trip. Gets to stay home, daddy's new favorite. And he says, I don't believe you that you have another younger brother. Go get him. So they have to go all the way back home and go get Benjamin. That's really hard to convince Jacob. And Jacob goes, you guys better take care of him because I have already lost one of my favorite kids. You better not lose the next one. Sounds familiar? Sounds like the same dysfunction? They get back up there, and and part of the trick then is that Joseph says, oh, yeah, you guys are telling the truth. Yeah, that's cool. Go ahead, take some grain. And he stuffs a golden goblet or chalice in Benjamin's sack, and then they arrest him at the gate for thievery. Trick, part of the test. They get him back into the throne room there or the the place where this judgment is happening. And Judah steps in, our boy Judah, the louse, the jerk. Judah steps in, and what's crazy is he goes and he pulls Joseph aside. And I don't know if you know much about ancient history. You don't walk up to the royalty and be like, come here. And he does, and he goes and he grabs Joseph, and he risks his life to get Joseph's attention. And he pulls him aside, and he said, I, apparently, we, I, there's evidence. I don't know. We stole it. I, I didn't know. I guess we'll be your slaves. And he says, oh, no, not all of you, just Benjamin. I'm keeping him. And Judah goes, oh, no, you can't. You, you can't take him. My father will be crushed. He already lost a son. He can't bear to lose another son. Take me instead. I will be your slave if you let him go because this will kill my father. Please don't do that to my family. Now, the end of the story is great because, like, confetti pops and Joseph goes, it's me, guys. I'm just joking, right? It's like this big family reunion. But what we see in that moment is that Judah became who we expected him to become all along. Judah became that honorable, selfless, strong leader that we expected to be in the lineage of Jesus, right? Right? That's who we expected when we look back for his story. Something changed in Judah between when he says, burn the girl, and this. What changed? 
Let's go back to our story. I'll show you. Remember the last thing that he said in our story in verse 30, or chapter 38, was burn her to death. Wicked girl. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law on the death march. She sends a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And she, he did not sleep with her again. What it doesn't say is that he stopped the execution here. The implication, he didn't sleep with her again. The, the reason it has to say that is because he stops it. And he says, I was wrong. And he brings her home as a daughter, and he ends up raising her sons. She's pregnant with twins. She raises them, his grandkids, in his home. And I want you to pay close attention to this, because this is the only evidence anywhere in the story of Judah's turning point. Notice what Tamar didn't do. What would you guys have done, right? You're literally, you're being marched out into the square. Somebody's got a pile of wood and a match, and you've got these things in your pocket. What would you do? I think I'd have been like, whoa! These are Judas. Judah's the father, right? Judah promised me a kid, and I had to get it like this, but he's the one. I'm not guilty. He's guilty. Wouldn't you guys have done that? Like, I feel like that's the natural tendency here. She's about to die, and she didn't defend her reputation. She didn't out him. She didn't embarrass him, even though she had all the leverage. Instead, she showed him grace by sending him a private message. Not out in public. A private message it was unexpected the way that Judah got grace. Our series is about unexpected grace. You would think that Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham, would have gotten God's grace. He would have understood that and felt it through his family, right? And yet, that's not the way that grace comes to him. It comes through Tamar, his victim in this. And I don't think that's what we would have done. I think if it were me, I, when I get hurt, I strike back. I hit harder, right? Have you guys ever been in a fight and at the end you're like, how did it get here? It was about the dishes, right? Like everything escalates, doesn't it? It's like one punch, well, that hurt, punch harder. Well, that hurt, bang. And that's our tendency, isn't it? It's is to, to fight back, to hit harder when someone hurts us. And listen, in my life, some of my biggest regrets the times that I have hurt people the most are when I'm hurt. And stuff comes out of me because I feel like I have the right to hurt you back. It even happens with my kids. Like one of my kids will say something to me that stings, that hurts, and like I'm so quick to hurt them back. I'm like, I'm an adult. I know more words than you. <laughs> like I will hurt you. And then I'm like, oh no. What did I do? I crushed them. That's normal, that's natural, and it's sinful. And listen, what she does here seems like a small thing. It's just a, a couple verses, right? Like, she's, she's like, she sends this private message. It doesn't seem like a very big thing. What she did is she put him in check when she could have put him in checkmate. 
She had all the leverage to end him, all the leverage to get out of this situation. And instead, she puts him in check and she shows him the leverage and she says, look what I could have done. And then she leans on the power of that gracious reaction and hopes that he'll respond. And listen, Judah is horrible up until this point. I hope we've made that point. If you do a word study on Judah after this, he's, he's great. This is the only thing we can point to that's a turning point in Judah's story. And listen, this story isn't just a story about Judah stuck in the middle of a story about Joseph. It's the story of Judah's transformation from the wicked man that would sell his brother into slavery into the honorable man that would sell himself into slavery for his brother. This is a connector in the story. How did Judah go from the guy who sold Joseph to the guy who would defend Benjamin? From the selfish, horrible, irredeemable man, the bad brother, bad son, bad boyfriend, bad dad, to the selfless leader we expected to find in Jesus' lineage. And the star of this story is Tamar. Did you guys catch at the beginning in, in Matthew 1 when we're reading the genealogy of Jesus? Judah's not the only one in there. Tamar is. Tamar is listed in the lineage of Jesus. She's one of Jesus' ancestors. And listen, I don't think it was an accident that she was in the story in Genesis, and I don't think it's an accident that Matthew puts her in in his list because she's the star. And I'm going to leave you guys with this point on the screen. The unexpected part of God's grace might be that it comes through you. In a series about unexpected grace, the unexpected part of it, of God's grace, may be that it comes through you. And I know that some of you guys here identify with Judah, right? That one mistake after another, irredeemable feeling, the sense that nothing, I'm just too broken, right? And listen, if we would have stopped in the middle of the story, you would have never thought that Judah would become anything better. In fact, his family line goes on to be synonymous with authority and power, with King David, and with Jesus. Nobody would have expected God's grace for the world to come through Judah in the middle of Judah's story, especially Judah. And maybe you're here and you're like, man, I'm just too broken. And maybe the unexpected part of God's grace in your life is that it's going to come through you. Or maybe you're, you're here and you identify with Tamar, and I think that she has laid down a challenge for us. What, what if you laid down your right to be offended? What if you, when, when you're the victim, become the conduit of God's grace? And I need you to hear this so clearly. I am not saying stay in an abusive relationship. I'm not saying stay in an environment where you are getting hurt or people are getting hurt. But we all get hurt, don't we? We've all been hurt. What if you gave your offenders their stuff back? What if that leverage that you're holding on to, that offense that you're holding on to, that right to be angry with you, you hurt me and you shouldn't have. I know better now. 
How dare you hurt me? I'm going to hold on to that forever, and I'm always going to hold it over your head. And, and maybe you don't know it, but it's here. It's in my toolbox of ways to hurt you if I ever need to. What if we let go and gave people their stuff back and let go of the leverage? You see, I think that Tamar probably would have lived either way in this story. My suspicion is that if she just stepped up in, in the square and made a fool out of Judah, she probably would have gotten out of it. But she would have missed out on being in the line of kings and, and Jesus. She would have missed out on the grace that God had for her to join into this family with a, with a new Judah, a Judah that apparently turns into this honorable man. And I imagine how much we would miss out on and we would never even know if we were just holding so tightly onto the, the, the offense that we have a right to. So how, how do we do this? You need to feel the weight of grace. If you're the, if you're the Judas here, God sees you. All of it. The parts of you that nobody else sees. He knows, and he knows you, and he loves you. And he would say, I want to be with you. I want you to experience the freedom of grace, but you have got to feel that. It has to soak in for that. You need to accept the gospel. And listen, if, if that's the first time that that has ever clicked, because listen, we spend a lifetime, some of us, trying to make it click, trying to understand it in our head, when sometimes we need to understand it in our heart. That God knows all of it and loves you anyways. And there is grace and healing for that. If that's you and you're here, and it, maybe for the first time it's clicking, I don't think we should go any further. I'm going to pray a quick prayer, and if your heart is, is connecting with this and you want to pray this in your mind, this will lead you to Jesus. Jesus, I trust you, that you died for all of this, for my sin, I mean all of it, and, and that you already know and want me, I want to feel that. And so I trust that you died for me, I trust that you rose from the grave, and I want a relationship with you where that grace is felt. I believe, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if that was you for the first time, come talk to me afterwards because that's sort of where we start, right? That's the beginning. I'd love to talk to you about the Jesus that I know. But for most of you guys, I don't think that's where you were today. I think a lot of you guys are here and you've already, you've already accepted Jesus. But you need to feel the weight of grace too. Maybe it needs to soak into you again. The grace that you received was unexpected and unmerited. And I think so many times that makes sense early in our walk with Jesus, but then over time, we're like a sponge, and over time, if we're not just still soaking in it, then we sort of dry out, right? You didn't deserve any of what you've gotten from God, and yet he poured it out on you. So much grace, so much forgiveness, and I think like a sponge, we need to be so saturated by the gospel that it drips out of us onto other people. And you ask, how can I possibly have grace for other people? You need to spend some time reminding yourself of what grace feels like for you. Because when you're saturated in it, you can't help but it drip off of you. 
And so I'm going to pray over us today that we would feel the weight of grace and that we would be gracious to the people around us. Would you guys stand while I pray over you? Father, I am so thankful for my friends here today. Um, I am thankful, though, that the Bible is full of gray stories and grace stories. Stories where people who shouldn't be there are there because of you. And that tells us that us, uh, we can't be there, and yet because of you, you invite us in. I pray that the truth, that the unexpected part of God's grace might be that it comes through us would soak into everybody who hears me today and that they would just become saturated by your grace, by the gospel, that they'd let go of offenses, that they'd stop holding on to the broken parts of themselves as leverage, and that we would be open to your grace in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.